Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London. A church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. created a lot of problems. And as we know, as we are people of the word, that basically if you have wrong teaching, ultimately it's going to produce wrong types of behavior. And that's exactly what was happening. You had false teachers who had arisen within the church, and they were teaching false doctrine. And so the attitude of the believers was just wrong. They didn't really know, have a direction of where they were going. And for Timothy, it was hard for him to pull this thing together. And so Paul basically writes this letter to him, full of authority, so that it would encourage him, but those who would listen to it would know that this is the word of the Lord. And so it basically challenges these false teachers. It challenges false doctrine. It challenges false behavior. And it basically sets out how genuine believers, it sets out how they ought to conduct themselves in the house of God. And so as we go through this first epistle to Timothy, we see that 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 is a key verse which says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. 
You see, he wants them to know, you know, this is the right way to conduct yourself as opposed to the wrong way to conduct yourselves. So he writes this letter, it says how, that you ought to know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. The pillar and ground of truth. So if you want truth, you have to come to the church of the living God. If you want to be established on the pillar and ground of truth, you have to come to the church of the living God. You have to be taught right doctrine as opposed to wrong doctrine. And so this is what this epistle aims and sets out to achieve, to, to give us the right way to conduct ourselves. And what Paul does is, he, he compares and he contrasts positives and negatives, good behavior as opposed to bad behavior. And he compares things such as the importance of good, solid teaching that is able to build us up as believers, as opposed to the negative, false teaching, which we know was only bringing confusion, and it was basically leading people off track, leading people astray. And so, as we just consider this one thing for a moment, you know, good, solid teaching. You know, here at Calvary Chapel, South London, we would consider ourselves to be people of the word. We want to rightly divide the word of truth. But sometimes good, solid teaching isn't necessarily what we want to hear. Because good, solid teaching may get you to look in the mirror of your life. And it may encourage you or force you to bring about change because you, you look at the mirror of God's word and you realize, mm, that isn't me. I need to change. And to hear that from the front or to be around a body of believers who are encouraging that may be like, mm, I don't want to change. I want to be where I'm at. I want to stay here. And so Good, solid teaching isn't necessarily what we want because we get ourselves in comfort zones, but that is not what's good for you. That is not what God prescribes for his children. He prescribes good, solid teaching because, as I said before, it is good, solid teaching which is going to build you up. The truth of God's word is going to bring about change in your life. Jesus said amazing things, obviously, but Jesus said that, you know, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That's accepting the truth. That's recognizing that what God says about me is right, and what I say about me is not right. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And it goes, and Jesus goes on in that, in that portion to say, and who the Son sets free? So I ask the question, are you living in a, an element of freedom today because you're standing in truth? Because you're living in truth? It's a question. 
And I don't just ask you that. I ask myself that because first and foremost, I'm preaching to me. I have to be challenged by God's word just as I ch- try to allow God's word to, to, to challenge you guys as well. And so... It's good, solid teaching. You know, Paul just makes this a fundamental principle within this epistle. And within this in chapter 1, I said it was going to be a brief recap, but obviously it's not. Um, He goes on to say that we have to wage the good warfare. So it isn't just a matter of listening to good, solid teaching, accepting good, solid teaching. It's a matter of knowing that you as as believers... Me as a believer, whether you've been a believer for five minutes or for five years, the truth of the matter is you have a target on your back. You're in a war. It's warfare. And the enemy doesn't fight fear. Oftentimes, we even get hit by friendly fire. But we can't lose sight of the fact that we are in a war. And because, because we're in a war, you know, this is, um, this is the reason why many of us so often, you know, feel discouraged. This is why we feel that we're not motivated. We feel like we want to give up. Because we lose track of the idea that we're in a war. The enemy knows how to do his job. He knows how to do it well. And as well as you and me fighting against you and me, fighting against ourselves, we have this enemy whispering in our ears, you're not good, you're not worthy, that person does that much better than you, you're not praying enough, you're not reading enough. And before we know it, we listen to his, his, his words, we feel discouraged, we start drawing back from the Lord, and then we find ourselves in a place where we really don't want to be. And how to now start pulling ourselves back together again to find out where we are with the Lord, it's like a madness. You see, we draw back, but the Lord doesn't draw back because he never leaves us nor forsakes us but we draw back. And so what we need to do is, we need to, as we looked at Ephesians chapter 6, not too long ago, having done all to stand, what do we do? We stand and we fight. We engage in warfare. We put on the armor of God. And so, you know, the Apostle Paul saying to Timothy, you know, you're in a war. Don't get it twisted. You need to fight. You need to be encouraged. Know that the weapons of your warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in in God for pulling down strongholds. See, that's where we need to be. That's where we need to start thinking. We have to stand in the victory that Christ has already won for us. And we need to begin to live like overcomers. In chapter 2, Paul addresses the importance of prayer. Prayer in the household of God. Now, I would agree that that is very, very important. Amen? Amen. Prayer. Very, very important. And he says this in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, I exalt first of all. 
See, he puts a lot of importance there. That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for just some people, just for your friends, just for your family. No, for all men, all people. And so we need to be people of prayer. Not just for the things which affect us immediately, but for greater issues, wider issues. People of prayer. He goes on to say in verse 8, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so, would it be fair to ask the question, you know, what is our prayer life like? Does it need improving? Have I got a prayer life? Have I got a prayer partner? I mean, a couple of years ago, there was a big drive within Calvary Chapel, South London, so that we would have prayer partners so that we would have someone we can come together, come alongside on a weekly, maybe even a daily basis, but we could just be prayer partners. They would encourage us, and you know, we can be accountable to, to a certain degree. Have we got a prayer partner? Or are we happy to have seven days without prayer makes one week? W-E-A-K. I don't know if you got that. So, you know, Paul is given these building blocks of, you know, the importance of how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. The importance of teaching, the importance of waging a good warfare, the importance of prayer. And then we see God's universal and eternal desire for all people. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And this should make us think of evangelism. You know, but not just evangelism in the sense of, you know, do we go down to Brixton on a Friday, which is good. There's nothing wrong with that, and we need to be doing things like that. But it's the evangelism within, again, our families, at work. Maybe especially at work, because that's where we spend most of our time, at work, with our work colleagues. In our places of study, that's an important place to be a good witness, to evangelize, because in our places of study, that's usually the, the, the place where people are forming their ideas about the world, about what they think about things. So are we evangelizing in those areas? And we have, you know, to our neighbors, and there's other areas you can think of, And I don't just mean evangelism in terms of verbally sort of like declaring Jesus to be the Lord, which is right. But, you know, it's non-evangelism, non-verbal evangelism, should I say. You know, the scripture says in 2 Corinthians, it says that we are living epistles, which should be open to be read by all men. So in, in a sense, it's like, you can be declaring the gospel just by how you're living your life. That you're not someone who, when everybody is, is swearing, you're not swearing. When everybody is fiddling the books, you're not fiddling the books. When everybody is happy to be late every day, you're not happy to be late every day. When everybody wants to start talking about the boss and how they did this and how they did that, you don't engage in that. You're different. You see? It's not always us having to declare Jesus as Lord. 
Can people see that by what is being communicated from you? Question. But if you do have the opportunity, you know, as the scripture says, we should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have within us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. So evangelism, very, very important. You know, there's that beautiful portion in, in Romans 10 where it talks about whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, that's wonderful, isn't it, to know that we can declare the word so that somebody would call upon Jesus and they would be saved. But again, that portion goes on to say, well, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? And how should they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. It's beautiful. You see, if you haven't been tracking with us through Timothy, Paul is building these wonderful building blocks of how believers who name the name of Jesus ought to conduct themselves in their personal lives, but in the household of God. It's wonderful. And then we looked at in chapter 2, which Pastor Ephraim took us through, um, how Paul took time to address a very practical issue and a practical responsibility specifically for women, and that was basically in them dressing modest, mod, modest, mod, I'm so cold, I can't even say the word. Um, <laughs> yes, that word. Um, as they come to church. And by doing this, you know, they're not going to be bringing any undue a- attention towards themselves. And equally, they're not going to be a distraction, particularly for us men. Because we know that we as men, I know we're all spiritual and everything, but we are fickle. We get distracted with our eyes. Because that's how men are. They're very visual people. And so, to help us come together so that we're not having these distractions, Paul's just saying, do you know what? Let us take away all those things which could distract, in a sense, so that we could focus on the Lord. And so he says, you know, women, dress, dress mod- modest." Lee. That's the one. So, he addresses a very practical issue. And then chapter 3 opens with qualifications. Qualifications and the proper role of the function of leaders of a body of believers. You know, he lists these qualifications because, again, they were false teachers, giving out false doctrine, setting a false example. So he's saying, look, that's wrong, this is right. And what he does is, um, he lists these qualifications of overseers, and he sets a very, very high standard to which you could really look at and think, who can do that job? But by God's grace, he empowers, he enables people to do that job of overseeing the church. And when we looked at the qualifications, we saw that it wasn't necessarily duty-based. It wasn't skill-based. But it was more 
character-based. Because God is very much interested in our character. Who we genuinely are. And so, we know that the Lord isn't just looking at what you do, but he's looking at the inward person of the heart. Because the Lord is looking at integrity. He's looking at purity. He's looking at virtue. He's looking at honesty. And so on and so on and so on. Because if you are a person who functions with integrity and purity, you know, that's going to display on the outside. Because that's what's going on in the inside. It will be evident. And as I said before, God sets a high standard because he is a God of excellence. And just to give an example of how God chooses who he chooses to oversee his church um, and a body of believers, you know, we have that example of Samuel when he was about to appoint a king. And he goes to the household of Jesse and he sees all the sons and he's thinking, Whoa, this guy, he's good looking, he's handsome, he's buff, packing. And God says, no, not him. He goes through the whole lot of them. No, it's not him. So he's like, boy, I must have missed something because I know I was meant to go to the house of Jesse and I know I'm meant to choose one of his sons. All of his sons have lined up before me and it's not none of them. And so, and as we know the story, there's little old David tending sheep. Nobody's even thinking of David. But God's thinking of David. And, and the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's scary. Because the Lord looks at all of our hearts. And it's like, it's not like you can shut that off before the Lord. You can't shut it off, shut it down. Lord, don't look in here because, whoa, if you found out what was in here, you wouldn't like it. He sees it. And the scriptures is very, very right when he says, it says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above. He was meant to finish it there. Who can know it? We don't even know our own hearts. David had to say, search my heart, Lord. You search it. You show me what's in my heart. You see, God is looking at our hearts. And, you know, when he sets up people to oversee his church, he wants, the pe he wants people with the right heart, the right attitude, the right motivation. And when he's looking at what we're going to look at now, the characteristics are the same. It's not like he says to the overseers, yeah, you've got to have the right heart attitude and the right, you know, motivation. And, but, but you deacons over here, well, you could have a lesser sort of like responsibility, lesser characteristics. No, it is the same. One group has more responsibility than the other, but God's looking for the same heart attitude within both of them. And so today, I said it was a short recap, but we're here now. 
we're going to be looking at God's healthy deacons. And as I said, we see the same pattern, God keeping a high standard and looking at character traits that are evident in an individual and equally have been observed over a period of time. So, I hope you have your Bibles open to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And if you do, say amen. And reading from verse 8 to verse 13, I will begin. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's start unpacking our text for a little bit. The, word, the opening word here, likewise, is important because basically it's introducing a new thought, but it's connecting what has already been said. Okay? So it says, likewise, new thought, deacons. And the word deacon is an interesting word which comes from the Greek word diako. And this word means to run an errand or to be a servant. Now in the New Testament, there are various forms of this word diako that are used at least a hundred times. And we have words like diakonos, meaning servant, diakonia, meaning service, and diakoneo, which means to serve. Now we see a prime example of this word being used in Acts chapter 6, describing seven men who are chosen as servants of Christ to carry out a specific task, which we know in this situation was to serve tables. And as they were appointed and chosen to serve tables, again, we know that from Acts 6, this enabled those overseeing the church to give themselves to prayer and to studying and ministering the word of God. So this word, diako, you know, in the early church, it became a very common word. And it was widely used to describe any form of service or any form of servitude. It was basically a non-specific word until we get here in our text in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There is another place where it's used in, in a similar way, which is Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. But here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul uses this word to highlight a distinction and to emphasize that the word was now not being used in a non-specific way. It was going to be used differently. And 
You see, because we're so far removed from the, the original hearers now, you know, the original hearers of, of this letter would have understood what Paul meant, but we kind of like, in translation and everything, we can't lose an element of what he was actually getting at. So let's try and work that out. So the first-hand hearers of this would have understood it, but when it came time for the translators of the authorized King James Version to translate this word and translate this thought so that it made sense to us in English today, basically, they faced the problem. Because the word, as I said, means servant. And technically, we are all servants of Christ. But now we have Paul speaking of a specific group which he wants to identify. So rather than continue to translate the word as servant or servants, the translators of the authorized King James Version basically transliterated the word, which means that they basically created a word to give it meaning, to set it apart a little bit. Does that make sense? And they created this word, deacon. Which, in so many ways, you know, it helps us to see deacons now, as we look through the text, as a specific group of people, as a specific group of people who would aid church life, the function of what happens within church. They, a group of people who would come alongside overseers, and they would just help with the ministry of what goes on within the life of the church. Amen? And it helped to identify that. But equally, in other ways, it, it quite easily could be used to, to help to make us lose the key point, which is that we are all servants of Christ. We are all deacons, if that makes sense, if you can handle that. Because that's what the word means. It means servant. You see, we all have a part to play in the function of the body and in coming to the unity of the faith, because that's what the scriptures tells us. We, we don't have those who do all the work over there and those who benefit from those who do all the work over there. We're all meant to be doing the work of the ministry. Amen? That's what should be happening. But more often than not, within the life of the church or within the attitude of the church, we adopt this, this mindset that it is the overseers and the deacons who actually do all the work, and we just kind of like come in and just enjoy what they've done. Now, would that be a fair thing to say? You don't sound convinced. But that, see, that's where it loses something in translation. Yes, it identifies a group, but now we've got a whole group of people over here who think that they don't need to do anything. They don't need to help. They don't need to function and, and be servants of Christ. And that's where the problem is. And so the translators transliterated the word, and it describes individuals who are committed to assisting pastors and overseeing the function of the life of the church. Now, that be as it may, you know, and as a group of believers, we have to, you know, 
look at ourselves and find out well, where do we fit into that? How do I fit into that? You know, I'm a servant of Christ. How do I serve my local body? How do I serve this local expression of Christ Jesus within this community? Because, again, we're all meant to come together so that we all come to the unity of the faith. Amen? So that's a question I leave you with. But the qualifications, again, which Paul uses to describe this, this group now, which is called deacons, you know, are all, again, character-based. They're based on things which you can observe outwardly in their lives. Again, because their behavior would reflect what is inwardly going on in their hearts and minds and what their relationship is with the Lord. So, the first four characteristics of a deacon that Paul groups together highlights the importance of self-control within these individuals' lives who are now going to function in this group. And he says, likewise, deacons must be reverent. And that comes from the Greek word simnos, meaning they need to be dignified, they need to be honest. And, you know, as you look at this, as you consider this, you know, you'd think what actually be a minimal requirement of someone who now is going to have some type of position or role within a church. At least they should be dignified and honest. But that's one of the qualifications which, which Paul lists here. To be dignified and honest. And in so many ways, this one is like a heading for the next three things which he's about to say. And what he now does is he lists three negatives. And he lists three negatives because this was the attitude of the false teachers. And so he says the first thing, not double-tongued. The false teachers were being double-tongued. So Paul is saying someone functioning this role in this capacity, capacity is not to be a gossip. As we would say, they're not to be two-faced. They're not to say, you know, come and get one story from you and, and say one thing to this person, something completely different to that person over there and calls up st- rubbish and calls up strife. If an individual is like that, then no. First of all, they're a dodgy believer, but they should definitely not be functioning the role as a deacon. And so they need to be a person of integrity and they need to have integrity of speech. And so, you know, you look at people and you think, yeah, that person, you know, whenever I speak to them, I feel more encouraged. Whenever, you know, whenever they ask you to do something, it's not them just sort of like getting a whip and but, you know, they've got a very graceful way and, you know, maybe a firm way, but a graceful way of just saying what they need to say and getting something done. Integrity of speech. And they need to have these qualities because, and have integrity of speech and, and, and not be du- double-tongued because they may be in a position where they may be privy to important and sensitive information of people within the church. You don't want to know that you've spoken to someone functioning as a deacon, for, ex- for example, and you've poured out your heart to them, and then two twos, the whole church knows about it. 
You want to know that they're trustworthy somewhere along the line. That what you say to them in confidence, they will keep in confidence and they will commit to prayer. The next thing we see is what we saw enlisted in those who oversaw the church, which is not given to much wine. And as I said, we, we looked at this um, in a little bit more detail with the overseers. But, you know, just to note that this individual who, who potentially would function as a deacon, you know, alcohol or wine is not a dominant factor within their life. Alcohol is not controlling their life. You know, they don't have to go down to the pub with their work colleagues all the time. They don't, you know, they don't frequent the wine bars all the time and just being out on a rave. If anything, they will see, if they enjoy alcohol, they will see the use of alcohol as being something private to them and not to be used as a stumbling block for a, a believer who may be weaker. And, you know, you'll go from different culture to culture, and, you know, some cultures, pretty much, they have a lot more liberty and freedom with alcohol, whereas others are like, no, alcohol is definitely a no-no. Don't go near it. And I think what you need to do is, as I said, number one, alcohol cannot be a dominating factor within your life. It cannot be controlling you. But if you enjoy a, a private drink, you know, that's between, you know, it's in your own privacy, then that, that's fine in my mind. But don't use it as a vice to stumble somebody else. And so the person needs to be mindful of these things. Next, we have not greedy for money, which I suppose speaks for itself. You know, to know that someone who is functioning as a deacon, you're not driven by money. And we all know that money is necessary. Money is important, especially in this Western society. We all need money. But money isn't the driving factor. It isn't just, you know, how much money can I earn? How much pee can I get? You know, where can I bend the rules here so I'll get a little bit more money? I'm just going to abandon fellowship and I'm going to abandon sort of like the things of God totally for the next five years because I want to get this high-powered job and I just want to earn money and I want to be a millionaire. Really? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but to take yourself out of fellowship, to not do the things of the Lord because your driving force is just money? I don't know, maybe you should seek the Lord on that. You see, money just isn't the, their motivation. And Paul goes on to tell us in, you know, in this letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see, Jesus should be our motivation. Pleasing the Lord should be our motivation. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness should be our motivation. And if God wants to add all these things unto us afterwards, praise be the Lord. It's flipping it the right way around. 
And you see again, as Paul lists these things, these are the things which the false teachers were striving for. They were quite happy to, to get drunk, to get lean. They were quite happy to just fleece people for money. They were quite happy just to chat people's business. And Paul's saying, no, that's not what God requires from his servants and those overseeing the church or those functioning in this capacity within the church. Okay, verse 9 gives us another grouping as it speaks about spiritual life. And it says, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. So, the word holding here speaks of clinging to out of necessity. Now, that's interesting. Do we say that we cling to God's word so tightly out of necessity that we don't do anything unless God, through his word, has told us, okay, don't cling on anymore? Out of necessity. Now, the only example I can give and I don't have first-hand experience in this, maybe some of you do, but I'm going to say it. Thought Park. Now you're thinking, Thought Park, where did that come from? <laughs> Thought Park, who does those mad, scary rides? Right, now there's some people when they do those mad, scary rides, they have their hands up and they're just like, eee! and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how do you do that? But if I was on one of those rides, and I wouldn't be on one of those rides, because I'm a wuss, I'm scared of those rides. I'll be hanging on so tightly, my hands will just grip. Is anybody like that when they're on the rides? You just hang on so tightly, it's like, it's like, is that you? <laughs> right, if that's you, you can get the witness, amen? That's what it's talking about, How, holding on to God's word tightly, because you just got to cling to it, it's going to get you through. It's going to get you through sore. Sore? Okay, you're not with me. I'm moving on because you're not with me. It's okay. Stealth. I lied. <laughs> I'm sticking there. <laughs> but yeah, so you get the picture. It speaks of clinging onto out of necessity. And this word, you know, holding is connected to the, work, to, to the mystery of the faith. Now, if you remember when we went through Ephesians, it's like when the Bible talks about a mystery, it's mysterion in the Greek. It's not talking about one of those Agatha Christie kind of like things, of this mystery which you just can't solve. And it's speaking of a mystery which is hidden. But at its appointed time, it shall be revealed. And so, I think it's in the book of Peter, it talks about how the prophets looked or looked forward and they saw, you know, they saw a crucifixion and they saw a resurrection. They thought there must be two messiahs because we can't see. We see these mountaintops, but we just don't figure it out. We can't figure it out. And so, now we come back and we say, ah, there's two mountaintops, but not two messiahs, one messiah but two comings. You see, it's something which was hidden from those prophets of old, but now we come into the New Testament, we get the revelation because we look back and we see. At its appointed time, it was revealed. 
Amen? So what it's talking about here now is that those who are functioning in this, in this role, they're able to hold fast to New Testament doctrine. They're able to hold fast to doctrine which has been revealed by the apostles and the prophets. They're able to hold fast to the full counsel of God, Genesis to Revelation. And they hold fast to it so strongly, so tightly, they cling to it that it affects everything they do. They hold fast to it so strongly that, you know, their conscience is not pricked now. And what does that mean? It means that in those moments when they're feeling weak, when they're feeling downcast, when they're saying, oh me, I'm the worst thing, when they're feeling like they're going through this wilderness experience, they don't have to start now thinking, oh, oh okay, I've got to come back to Jesus. I've got to get saved again. I've got to get saved again. They have truth locked down. They may go through those things, but they have truth locked down. Just like the belt of truth, Ephesians chapter 6 again, they have truth locked down. So they don't have to be getting a saved again, 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 again. Their conscience is pure before God. Lord, I'm not right, I'm not where I should be, but you know what, that's not condemning me. If anything, it's going to encourage me and motivate me to move forward. You see, this was not the attitude of the false teachers. And Paul mentions this in chapter 1. He says in chapter 1, verse 5, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside, aside to idle talk. You see, these people who were put up and elevated into roles, of, into, um, into positions, falsely, as soon as the going got tough, they were gone. And so the Lord is saying, those who are functioning in this capacity of deacons, no, mate, you know, you need to identify people who are going to be able to stand. He, in chapter 1 also, Paul says, having faith and a good conscience, which some, again, having rejected, having rejected this good conscience, concerning the faith, having, have, shipwreck, have suffered shipwrecked, sorry. And he goes on, and this is interesting because, you know, he names the people. He says, of whom are Hermenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they not, may not learn, sorry, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. So, having that good conscience, having truth locked down in our lives so that we're not having to, every time we go through a difficulty, we're going back and starting from point A again. We dust off the, we, we shake off the dust of our feet and we move forward. Verse 10 goes on to say, but let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Now, the structure of, of the sentence here implies that this isn't just a, a, one, a once for all testing, it's a continual testing, which 
we believe that we believe that this is basically done by the overseers of the church. But you know, the deacons' lives should be in full view of the whole congregation. You know, it's something which we as a congregation will be able to look at people and say, yeah, you know, I can see how this person functions. I can see what they do. I can, you know, it's evident. I, you know, it's a no-brainer. We see what they do and how they function and how they serve the body of Christ. And it's interesting to me just thinking of this, that the, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, you know, he just takes this, he takes the whole thought a step further because here he's saying, you know, that they should continually be tested by those amongst them. But in 2 Corinthians, chapter 13 and verse 5, you know, he says that examination shouldn't just be done by those outside, but he says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. And so this whole idea of testing, it's this external testing by our brothers and sisters around us, but it's also the internal, where we need to be testing ourselves to prove that we are in the faith. So that we are found blameless. And so moving on, verse 11, as you know, this is a verse which, you know, has provided a lot of controversy and debate over the years. But my own, I share with you my own conviction. And I believe that what Paul is actually doing in verse 11 is introducing a new group here. Um, and let me just say, as, a, you know, as I'm go- going through this, basically, it's not to try and dissect everything. It's really just giving you something where you can go and form your own opinions to see if you see if these things are so, for your own further study. But verse 11, which says, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, this is interesting because the word, I hope you've got your Bibles, the word there is not in the original text. And the Greek word, gun, G-U-N-E, is used for wives. And this Greek word, gun, can also be translated women. So we could read this verse as this. Likewise, wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. Or, likewise, women must be reverent, not slanderous, temporal, faithful in all things. Now, my own conviction is that it makes more sense to read this as women. And it's for a couple of reasons. I'll give you my reasons. Now, as I said, the word likewise introduces a new group. It introduces a new thought. And this is exactly what Paul done in verse 8 by introducing this new category called deacons, yeah? And now he says, likewise, I'm introducing another group here, okay? Likewise, right, so he's introducing another group. So by Paul using the word likewise, 
if he was meaning one group, it would seem like he's being repetitious in what he's actually saying. Does that make sense? It seemed like, well, you've already said this, and now you're repeating yourself, and it doesn't make sense. And the second reason is, if deacons' wives are in view, then this would basically mean that the wives of deacons would have to have more qualifications than the wife of an overseer. And the wife of an overseer, I'm sure you would agree, would have more responsibility within a church. And it would seem that the deacon's wives have got all these qualifications and everything, but the overseer's wives doesn't. It doesn't seem to be consistent. It doesn't seem to marry. So my conviction here is that what Paul's actually doing is saying, likewise, women. You've got men functioning, but likewise, you've got women functioning within the church. And with women functioning in the church now, he starts giving a list of the qualifications as women's functions within the church. You're with me? You didn't sound convinced. And so, when he introduces and says, likewise, women, I believe that is exactly what he's doing. He's saying, the women who function in the church must fall into these parameters and these qualifications also. And he makes this distinction for women, and it's like, in the Greek language, there is no word for deaconess. So it would be deacon, be female deacon. That's what it would be. And so you're not going to have a deaconess in there. Diakonias, whatever it would be, because it isn't there. It just, it's just not, it just doesn't exist. Okay? So, so I believe that Paul is introducing this new group. He's identifying as the women who work within the church, and when with the women who work within the church and function in that capacity as female women deacons, he's now saying the, they, they have a parallel of qualifications. They must be reverent, which means they must be honorable and trustworthy, not slanderers, not two-faced or double-tongued, temperate, demonstrating self-control in their life, and faithful in all things, committed to the work of Christ. And so, I see it very plain and evident in my mind. So we have men functioning as deacons, women functioning as deacons. Verse 12 then introduces um, the family life of those serving in this role. And it's like he kind of like goes back to the men in a sense. Because he says, let deacons be the husbands of one wife. So if you are a man and you're functioning as a deacon and you are married, the expectation is that you are going to be faithful to your wife, that you're going to be able to rule your household well, that you're going to be able to give clear leadership and direction to your family. That is the expectation. And, you know, people would evidently see this as a characteristic of your life. You know, not going to just look at you and think, well, that, that guy's serving as a deacon, but, whoa, his whole family's gone to pot. No. They're going to look and say, look, you see that man? He's obviously leading his family very, very well. 
you know, he's, he's faithful in the things of the Lord. He's faithful in raising his children in the, in the ways of the Lord. And it's just going to be evident for all to see. Amen. Then we come to verse 13. And this basically describes the reward for those who faithfully function in this role. It says, for those who have served well as deacons attain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And you know, our faith is one in which the Lord Jesus, you know, for those who are who faithfully serve him, who stay committed to following him and surrendering to him, we know that the Lord, you know, says that there are rewards for those things. You know, whether you see those rewards as being physical things, material things, or whether you see them as being spiritual rewards, you know, or whether you see it as being both. You know, the scriptures are consistent in that, you know, to he who overcomes, he should, you know, it's that consistent of, you know, the faithfulness of our service with Christ. It's, it doesn't go unrewarded. And for people who serve as deacons within the house of God, you know, God sees our labors of love. And he says that it is not unnoticed. It will go rewarded. Amen? So, in closing... I hope that we've established today that everyone who is a believer is technically a deacon because you are a servant of Christ Jesus. And I was going to say something funny that if you are a deacon, then you need to deke. What does deke mean? I don't know. It means you're meant to just serve. <laughs> Have you deked today? <laughs> I, don't see, I don't see you deking. I don't know. Maybe we should coin a phrase at Calvary Chapel, South London. Who wants to coin a phrase? Just me? Okay. It's just me. I can't get a witness. Okay. Okay, so we won't deke. We'll just, yes. We're all deacons because we're all servants of Christ. But then we must look around us and, and see that there are those who actually give themselves over to really serving the body, serving in areas, you know, whether that may be, you know, the sound or hospitality or, or whether that may be the tabernacle team, whatever areas are, we must recognize that those who, who specifically give themselves over to serving, and, then, and in those areas, those are those who really take the responsibility of serving. And we need to recognize these people. And, you know, we recognize that the church has been going for a number of years now, and we haven't officially appointed elders. We haven't officially appointed deacons. And that's something we are definitely in the process of doing within the very, very near future. Okay? Um, but knowing that we are all servants of Christ, you know, we need to 
challenge ourselves to know that, you know, there isn't those who do all the work and those who observe. We all meant to muck in and do the work together. Amen? And that makes it a lot more e easier for the life of the church. But those who do function in this specific role, which Paul has been describing, you know, we know that they must be people who are self-controlled and mature, especially in the areas of, of drink, money, and their temper, and the use of their tongue. You know, if, if they are a married person, a married man, then in a relation to their family, they need to be faithful to their wives and be able to show good leadership and discipline to their children. In regards to relationships, they must be hospitable and gentle with regards to those inside the church and those outside the church. They must have a good rapport. And in terms of their spiritual life, they must be people, an individual who holds fast to the word of God. You know, in closing, Jesus said, if any man serve me, diakonio, let him follow me. And where I am there also shall also my servant diakonos be. If any man serve me, him my father will honor. See, this whole thing of servitude. You know, Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. He sets the perfect example for us all. And that's who we should be following, Jesus. And Peter said you know, a, a, a very amazing thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. He says, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's nice because Jesus, you know, he's able to do that overseeing, but he also comes alongside us as a servant to make sure we get through to the end. And it's a lovely picture. So, Jesus is faithfully committed to us and he wants us to be faithfully committed to him also. Amen? Amen. If I could ask the worship team to come back, um, we'll close in prayer and they will lead us in a few souls. If there are any of you who need prayer, um, first and foremost, I will challenge you to just share with the person next to you. Do you know what? Would you pray with me? Because this is body ministry here. But if you really need prayer from one of the elders here, one of the pastors, then um, we'll be available to you at the front. Just make yourself known and we'll gladly pray with you. If you're here today and you, you don't know Jesus... You've been hearing a lot about Jesus and you don't know Jesus, then can I encourage you to make yourself known, to, to find out more about the Lord today? Because the scripture says today is the day of salvation. None of us are promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. And, and there's been a lot said about how a church ought to function today, but you know, our desire is that people will come to know the Lord. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we truly thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, that it's a day that you have made, Lord Jesus, and that you speak for your word. 
And so continue to minister to the hearts of your people today, Lord, as your word has gone forth, Lord. I just pray that it would continue just to resonate in their hearts and minds. That, Lord, it would bring comfort to those who need comfort. Lord, it will just, you know, just bring reassurance to those who need reassuring, Lord. That it would be a challenge to those who need challenging, Lord. It would be uh, a rebuke to those who need a re- rebuking, Lord. But ultimately, Lord, it will be found to bring glory and honor to your name, Lord. And so, again, we thank you for today. We bless your holy and precious name. In Jesus' name. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.